Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is the first of our episodes to go all remote. And this is our show where we talk about the news, what's hype, what's real, what's in the headlines, why they matter from our vantage point in tech. And of course, there's a lot going on around coronavirus specifically. We've covered it a lot on the show. You can catch past episodes. You can also see our reading list of resources, and we will continue to cover it. However, today we're going to be talking specifically about the new healthcare data rules that just came out from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And I have two A6NZ experts joining for this conversation. We have general partner Julie Yu on the bio team and Venkat Morchula also on the bio team on the market development side. So why don't we start by talking about the context right now? This was quite the week of cognitive dissonance in many ways. We obviously have on the one hand, this global health crisis and pandemic elucidating so many of the shortcomings and fragility of our current healthcare system. But at the same time, we have this really landmark rule that was published on Monday, or it's technically two rules. This is a huge just landmark event for the healthcare and tech industry in general. And it's sort of interesting to balance the two sides of that story and, you know, realize that some of the very players who will benefit from these rules are the players who are being completely stressed right now, just given the macro events. I mean, we know, obviously, it's about novel coronavirus and COVID-19 disease, but how do these rules connect to that? Well, it's so we can get into the details, but there's specific provisions in the rules that have to do with mandates for hospitals to adopt certain technological solutions, whether it be solutions dealing with things like real-time notifications as patients get transitioned through the healthcare system, whether it be the adoption of APIs to be able to transfer data between various systems and, and obviously make them available to patients. Those very systems who are now being put on a very aggressive timeline per the rules to implement those technologies are obviously the very systems that are trying to prepare in a very sort of frantic way for the anticipated load with regards to coronavirus. So there's a real resourcing question um, in terms of how these organizations that are already resource constrained are going to be able to deal with these two issues. So speaking of the timeline, I think as from 2009 to really 2020, it's on one hand pretty remarkable. You know, I think uh, about 10 years ago, 16% of U.S. hospitals had an electronic healthcare record. Today, we're at 96%. The thing that's interesting to me is the life of a patient. You know, right now in the U.S., everyone's anxious and stressed, not just for themselves, but for their loved ones, because even if you spend 10 days at an incredibly prestigious academic institution, when you ask what happened to me, you know, at best you might get a CD-ROM and hundreds of pages from an EMR record that, frankly, is pretty dated in its infrastructure. The frustration that many in the industry have had, including patients, is that just because you have a system of record doesn't mean it's really interoperable and you can actually access that information as a patient, as a provider. Can you guys break down the specifics of these rules and what they are? So high level, there's two rules, one that came out from the ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, and then one set of rules from CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The rules from the ONC largely have to do with a two-year timeline for adoption of FHIR-based APIs. So FHIR, F-H-I-R, is a protocol standard, fast healthcare interoperability resource is what it stands for, as well as the adoption of a data standard called USCDI or US Core Data for Interoperability that essentially defines the scope of data elements that would be necessary for the exchange of information with regards to healthcare. So that's like a lot of acronyms. Like, what does that mean? Like, if you're talking to a patient or to a provider, what does that mean? 
Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the entire healthcare system, as Venkat mentioned, has been heads down implementing electronic health record systems. And one would assume that now that we have digitized data, that we get sort of data liquidity for free, you know, the ability to get data out of those systems, to exchange data between those systems. And there have been a number of reasons why, um, both, you know, on the vendor part, as well as just in, in terms of misaligned incentives for even sharing that information, et cetera. And so what this rule really represents is a top-down mandate that APIs, which are a technical means by which that data exchange can occur, must be adopted by both the vendors and the health systems that implement these systems such that that data can be exchanged in a fluid way. So that's what the ONC rule covers. So basically the APIs, the application programming interfaces, are like the pipes that connect and make that data more liquid and exchanging them between all these walled gardens and silos. And now we have the rules to actually make that happen. Can I just say one part of it? Why is this interesting right now? I mean, for the longest time, you could have shared screenshots of your Epic or Cerner system. and There was like a black market for screenshots. Of <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so the ruling actually finalizes requiring that screenshots may be shared. There's still some caveats, but, you know, we get excited about that. That's a big game changer because now you can actually show the EMR system and share if a physician's frustrated why, what they're actually seeing. And these are the kind of, you know, little things that actually make a big difference. Yep. And then the second set of rules is from CMS. And these have to do with essentially requirements for both health plans. So insurance companies that implement things like Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, et cetera, as well as providers who receive reimbursement from CMS, who receive reimbursement from Medicare type programs. There's really a number of provisions here. One is a requirement that patient event notifications be provided by hospitals who have an EHR such that you can actually track where patients are moving across the healthcare system. So this is like if Julie gets admitted to a hospital, if that hospital receives Medicare reimbursement, they will be required to notify my primary care doctor or any of the sort of primary caregivers in my care team. And that is also on a very aggressive timeline. It's a six-month timeline to implement. So wow. literally by September of this year, hospitals must demonstrate that they have that, that capability in place. That is so aggressive, especially given the environment right now. But I actually think like now more than ever, it's more important, right? I mean, the reason why these information sharing rules are so critical is that when you think about care coordination or driving value into the system, if the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, if the hospital Mm -hmm. doesn't know what's happening in the post-acute or in the home, like these are serious gaps in care. And information has been a big reason why teams that have been deployed and resources that have been deployed to coordinate this care haven't been able to do so. And so we have companies like Patient Bank that help you coordinate care and hospitals to share this information. The other thing is the notion of who are you notifying, right? And I think one thing that's interesting about this is that it's your primary care provider. We've talked also about the fact that the number of individuals who actually have a dedicated primary care provider has shrunk over the years. So that begs the question of even if you have the technology in place to implement these notifications, how do you actually know where you're sending those notifications? And I think that's going to be another issue that surfaces here is what is the actual provider network component of actually getting this right and putting teeth behind it? I love that you brought that up because notifications sound so frivolous and minor on the surface because people think about it as like app notifications, like you have email, you've got mail. But really what you guys are talking about is it's providing an overlay for coordination, connection, information, et cetera. So notifications is actually much bigger than the word suggests. And especially in the age of value-based care, where you are literally at financial risk for what happens to your patient holistically, once you lose sight of what's happening to that patient, that's really where the risk lies. And that's why there's, again, so much incentive on all fronts for hospitals to adopt this. 
So we just talked about the notifications piece. Just to cover another set of the provisions under the CMS rule, there's also by 2021 requirements to implement provider directories and claims data access via APIs for health plans. And so that's more on the insurance side of the, of the market. And then by 2022, there's a requirement for payers to be able to facilitate patient data exchange themselves. So if you think about the hierarchy of requirements here, it's first like the actual providers themselves getting their house in order. Then it's the insurance companies being able to provide their version of operability, which is really around claims data and provider networks. And then kind of the holy grail is that all players in the ecosystem are exchanging data, which then includes the insurance companies themselves. So that's what the rules are and why they matter. Can we quickly talk about the specific implications? You already alluded to some of the implications for patients, for sure, and for providers. You mentioned insurers in that last rule, Julie, but how does the insurance side really play here? So insurance companies, if anything, any data liquidity that has occurred historically in the past within healthcare has actually been around claims data the billing records, kind of the audit trail of what gets submitted for reimbursement from providers to payers. It's typically transmitted in a batch format or using very legacy EDI technologies. A core part of what health insurance companies do is obviously define the network of providers that are quote unquote in network and therefore you as a member of the health plan can be guaranteed certain rates. Those should be relatively low hanging fruit for health insurance companies to implement. What's really gonna be the big, I think, sea change is is on the, the patient data exchange side, where again, because payers are one step removed from the last mile of care, yes, it's been hard for hospitals to exchange even between themselves, but for payers, it's been an even more arduous task. And that's really where I would say that the vast majority of like administrative waste, the use of the fax machine, you know, has to do with transmission of, of, of patient data from providers to payers, uh, specifically to get reimbursed, right? So the notion of prior authorization, for instance. And specifically, how does these rules affect that prior auth process, just as a concrete example? Because that's something that I think most people already experience. Like if I want to get a particular drug or a particular treatment. The experience that we have today with regards to prior auth is extremely long, arduous, asynchronous and completely untransparent. So the premise here is that those exchanges need to be done via APIs because the vast majority of the latency in that process is like making a phone call based request for medical information to then be sent to party X versus party Y. And if you can just take all of that off the table, the ability for the patient to get the drug he or she needs in a much more timely manner, that's the huge sea change opportunity there. What I hear when you say that as well is the convenience, the efficiency, all of it, but is that it also frees up those very people doing those jobs to do the more value-added part of their job instead of this, like, hacking the phone and the facts and all that stuff, which is great. Exactly. Well, I was just going to say on the payer side, almost every payer we speak to has sort of talked about their frustration openly about how if patients think that Epic or Cerner or any EMR is a walled garden, they also get the same sentence from health systems that they can't share it. So they more than anybody else wanted this. So the big elephant in the room that everyone is you know frustrated about that Epic used to justify their letters and protests and that a lot of people, even the American Medical Association has been expressed some concern about these rules is around privacy. And clearly the medical record, the electronic health record as well is like a container of all this sensitive information from, you know, notes to lab results, to procedures, to all kinds of things. What you tell your doctor, even patient histories, basically. So what are the implications on the privacy side? Yeah. I mean, I think right now these rules were very specifically designed to address like just the interoperability piece. And my sense is that that was deliberate to carve out the privacy aspect because today 
the privacy aspects of this type of data as used by the various kind of vendor stakeholders in the space is largely governed by the FTC. And so there is a separate regulatory body overseeing that today. Interesting. The other thing is that there's precedent for this. The example that came to mind for me was uh, the GINA Act, which was the uh, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which was passed back in 2008. It's basically saying we're not going to discriminate against you in insurance and, and even employing you based on this. There will likely be either a rule or a set of rules like that that mm-hmm. pertain to the specific use cases of the data that's now being made liquid. Rather than bundle it into the interoperability rules, I think it makes sense to keep that separate because they are very specific. I think what's fascinating is like Epic, they used the classic boogeyman of privacy. The other big boogeyman is HIPAA, which ironically stands for like Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And I think the reality is that when it comes to consumer choice and consumers wanting to use their data for their own healthcare benefit, a lot of this kind of falls wayside. And so what's striking to me is that privacy has been used to stop a lot of innovation for our industry. Well, what I love about you mentioning HIPAA is that, you know, we also had Suzanne Fox on an episode of the A6NZ podcast. She's with Citizen now, and she was at CMS. But she always points out, which I love, that HIPAA has both privacy and portability. And people forget that those two things actually go hand in hand. And what I'm hearing both of you say is that they're both important and they live together, but you have to be very sophisticated in how you make sure you ensure portability, which allows interoperability, data liquidity, all these things. And then you also have to think about specific things, privacy in the discrimination sense or other issues to make sure that things are okay. What would you say then, you know, again, this is a really interesting time. It's a lot of dissonance, as you mentioned, Julie. So maybe the time frame may get adjusted, but where does tech come in? Well, this is a huge tailwind for tech across a number of dimensions. You know, one is that if you look back at all of the major categories of pla- like large platform companies that have been built in healthcare, they have pretty much all been driven by some kind of top-down regulatory change. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the legacy EDI companies that we mentioned earlier, whether it's EHRs, I mean, the reason that Epic and Cerner are so powerful in the market right now is because of the High Tech and Meaningful Use Act. And that really precipitated all of the widespread adoption of their products, e-prescribing, you know, telehealth, etc. All of those were driven by, again, massive regulatory change. And so I think we should see the same thing here, where you will see the creation of iconic companies coming out of this era. So that's one big thing. I think there are also specific categories of solutions that will be particularly uh, benefited by this particular rule set. What are those? Yeah, like the interoperability infrastructure players themselves will obviously benefit from this because, again, we can't necessarily rely on the EHR vendors or the legacy systems to be the ones that are provisioning this whole sort of like middleware layer that actually enables the true interoperability. And so uh, I think what we'll see, like the Plaid and the Stripe-like systems, be able to, you know, sort of stand up a massive standalone business in this context. I think there's a whole category, again, that we've talked about of like this notion of real world evidence. Right now, the huge barrier to throughput and productivity in in drug development is access to real patient populations for measurement and, you know, cost effectiveness studies and things of that sort. And the free flow of data is going to be a huge tailwind in that market. So I think that's another example. And the third one, which may be less obvious, but extremely important, especially given the times, is virtual care and the notion of like digital providers. One of the barriers to growth for digital health companies traditionally has been the inability to integrate 
both data in as well as data back into the traditional healthcare value chain. And the traditional healthcare system is still where the majority of healthcare is delivered today. And so in the absence of that connectivity, it's been very hard for those companies to scale. But now that these data troves are being opened up and the connectivity will be there, that's going to be a huge tailwind for that category as well. We're soon going to be at a tipping point where the value of the data that is actually outside of these EHR systems that we're now talking about will be equal to, if not greater in value than that of the traditional EHR systems. Do you mean like wearable data and stuff? Because you've talked about that in previous episodes, that there's other data that we have to consider in these rules. Yeah, wearables is certainly, I think, where people's minds go first, just because they've been so sort of prominent in consumer culture. But it's actually, I think, more a broader definition of digital health. And so these are our actual sort of digital provider companies, each of whom own a specific dimension of the experience of you as a patient and therefore have pretty robust data, pretty rich data at this point about that dimension of your life. And right now, those data sets are not integrated with each other, let alone integrated with the traditional EHR systems. And so I think, you know, as we continue to be heads down on just interoperability within our core traditional EHR systems, I think soon we'll find that, you know, we can take many of those learnings and hopefully, you know, evolve that, that model to actually apply to this broader universe of data that sits in the digital health world there's going to be a robust set of opportunities for entrepreneurs and startups to go after the infrastructure layer to the transparency opportunities to, you know, even the payment reform opportunities. But some of the biggest groups that lobbied for these rulings were Apple and Alphabet and Microsoft and big companies, big Silicon Valley companies who not startups. That's right. Who want to take a bite out of the sort of the healthcare sector. And so a lot of giant tech companies hope that this is going to be the wedge that gets them in, especially because it's a consumer first approach, which is more native to how they think about their business models. So that's great, Venkat, because you guys have covered startups and some of the big tech companies. But how does this affect sort of big classic legacy incumbents in the healthcare system? Like what should their takeaway be? I would say that you need to upgrade your entire infrastructure and how you both ingest data and how you actually transmit it back into the system. There's a lot of old school players in the world, providers, I should say, that just don't have the infrastructure to interact with what consumers expect today to, you know, when they walk into the four walls of a hospital. Frankly, a lot of healthcare is still in the 70s and 80s, and people have gotten away with it and have frankly used regulation and policy as an excuse. And that is no longer true. It's funny because on one hand, as Julie noted, the regulation is what creates opportunity in the industry. And then, of course, there's a flip side to it as well. So bottom line it for me, how should we think about these rules and what's our takeaway? It's part of an overall wave, I would say, of, of regulatory change and dialogue in healthcare that has the potential to unshackle healthcare and allow it to behave much more like a free market um, with regards to things like transparency, you know, getting rid of things like surprise billing, et cetera. So I think in the overall grand scheme of things, this is sort of in conjunction with a lot of other exciting tailwinds. I think we should, as we talked about, anticipate more regulation around things like privacy. You know, there's still uh, an anticipated rule around information blocking and what the penalties will be for people who don't abide by these rules. So more to come. And then, you know, the last thing here is that history has shown that massive technology platform companies will be built in eras that ensue from these kinds of massive regulatory change. Thank you so much for joining this segment of 16 Minutes, Julian Van Gath. Thank you, Sono. Thanks, Sono. 